Houses are scarce, home prices are high, and bidding wars on homes for sale seem to be the new normal. While the 21st century has seen a wide variety of housing markets with massive booms and busts, never in all of these years have there been so few properties in the market. This has helped fuel a surge in home prices that might look reminiscent of the mid-2000s housing boom, but there are some important differences. That being said, the housing market today does face some challenges. The average 30-year fixed-rate mortgage rate in the United States has surged from 3.1% to 5% since the start of the year. Can the housing market withstand this surge in mortgage rates? Furthermore, how has the pandemic changed the long-term landscape for various sectors of real estate? To help provide some insight on this, I'm joined today by my colleague Mike Kelly, who leads US real estate here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. So Mike, welcome to Insights Now. Thanks for having me, David. So let's start with your thoughts on the huge rally that we've seen in housing markets throughout the pandemic. Um, as of January, home prices were up a whopping 19% from a year ago, according to Chase Schiller data. How did we get here? So there are a few factors. Uh, the housing market, uh, pre-pandemic, the housing market had already been seeing large increases in, in prices. There's a limited supply. Population was moving towards uh, buying more homes, the aging demographic. Uh, moving out of cities. And then obviously with COVID, uh, more people moved out of the cities into the suburbs, into other markets where there was just a housing shortage. Uh, so you couple all that together and you see the huge spike that we've that we've had. So if people might not be able to afford to buy a home with prices so much higher, or if they're just choosing not to buy, can they still find homes to rent? Yes. So we've certainly seen a, a large growth in the single family for rental market. Uh, we, as a platform, were one of the first institutions uh, to get into that space. Uh, you know, historically, single-family rentals were owned by uh, you know, individual investors. So someone might own three or four homes, rent them out in their neighborhood. Uh, but really, the, both the public REIT market uh, has seen a large growth in that, as well as private institutional-type investors who are both buying single-family rentals uh, and building. We're doing more of the latter uh, than the former. We think the build for rent market uh, is here to stay. Uh, we took a long time to get there, uh, a couple of years before we found the, the right uh, institution that we wanted to partner with, but we've made a big commitment to the space and we followed, followed that up. Uh, just to touch on your other point though, <clears throat> I, don't, I wouldn't say uh, houses are not affordable. Um, it's just the pricing has, has increased significantly. I think the offset to that is that we've seen wage growth grow as well. So homes are trading. Uh, they're just more affordable or less affordable than they used to be. And, and of course, yeah, and of course, that means a certain amount of increased inequality because uh, it's really a matter of down payments and, uh, and uh, richer families can afford higher down payments. It is. It's a big struggle for, uh, for many folks who don't have the money saved up. Um, you know, and there are certainly programs that are offered to try and help those. Uh, but even there, it's still very difficult to obtain, a more, much more difficult to obtain a mortgage than it was 15 years ago. Sure. So uh, I was talking about 15 years ago. Uh, another common concern among investors is whether we might now be in a, uh, another housing bubble like we saw back in the mid 2000s. And I have some, some of my own thoughts on this uh, or why this might not be the case. But how do you respond to that concern? Two things uh, jump out immediately. One, uh, the housing supply is nowhere near uh, where it was back then. So when you look at the, the rate of uh, increase in the housing supply 
back from early 2000 up to 2006, 2007, uh, there was a tremendous amount of, of construction. Uh, the market never really recovered from that. So we never saw once the JFC hit and we came out of it, we didn't see the return. So we didn't see that supply. So that in part leads to where we are today because there's a much more limited supply with more people wanting to own homes. Second piece is, we we're just talking about this, it, it is harder to get a mortgage today than it was back in 2004, 2005. Back then, you could borrow much higher loan of value. Uh, you didn't need anything for down payments. Uh, the banks, I think, have held firm in terms of requiring that down payment. So it makes it harder for everybody to buy, but it certainly makes it harder for investors who don't plan to live there to buy. And, you know, the, the one thing I'd add to that is for those worried about a sort of a global financial repercussion from any housing bubble, if there was one in the United States, um, it's obviously far, far less dangerous now because of changes in regulations and changes in financial institution behavior. Uh, there just isn't as much capital leverage to the U.S. housing market as there was before and, and nothing like the same sort of edifice of derivatives built upon it uh, that we saw back then. Yeah, I agree with that. That's a, that's, that is a big part of the change, the regulatory uh, restrictions. So, yeah. So uh, generally, I, I agree that this is not a bubble, or at least nothing like what we saw in the mid-2000s. Uh, and supply is, of course, a big reason why this market isn't in a bubble. Uh, but can you talk to us why, or talk through why housing inventories have become so low, and, and can we get more supply to the market? So again, a number of reasons for this. In part, it's it's costs, uh, both hard costs and labor costs, uh, as well as availability of, of skilled labor. So again, going back to the, to pre GFC, there were a lot of, there were a lot of developers, there were a lot of um, construction workers available to lead that you know big supply increase. Once the, once the GFC hit, a lot of those people left the industry. They found other jobs. They did other things. They left the country, things like that. So we don't have the same supply of labor to build the houses as quickly as we were in the past. And then you look at other costs. The hard costs, uh, lumber costs are up significantly. Um, and there's all, also more uh, or less land available for that type of development. Uh, and then again, going back to the single family rental market, I think a lot of the, uh, when you look at when houses come on the market for sale, um, the institutional buyers are buying them, uh, limits the supply on uh, the individual purchase, purchasers. Um, but again, the, the, the supply uh, available uh, is just much more difficult uh, to, to achieve. And and, um, and of course, we haven't just seen prices surge in homes, but also rents, which, which you mentioned earlier. Um, can you expand a little bit more on your outlook for the rent market? So again, some of this is dependent on uh, location. You know, one of the things I haven't mentioned yet is um, you know, the demographic shifts where we're seeing people move. Uh, some states are benefiting uh, more than others. Uh, so in those markets where there's been a big demographic swing, uh, the ability to raise rents uh, with a limited supply um, has really uh, increased. So we've seen uh, both uh, multifamily rents and single-family rents increase significantly. Even back in the even in the bigger cities that saw rents fall significantly during the pandemic, we've seen a huge bounce back uh, in San Francisco, New York, Boston, and cities like that. Um, so it's in the in the 
multifamily side as well as the single family side. The good news again is, you know, we have seen significant wage growth. Uh, so people can afford to pay more. Uh, but I think, you know, we all agree that we're getting to a point where we expect the rent growth to slow down a little uh, because there has been an increase in supply. Uh, and the wage growth, you know, is people can only afford to pay so much. So at some point, they'll move to a lower quality apartment that they can afford more easily. And then longer term, I mean, I know you talked about sort of geographical demographic shifts, but long, longer term, the United States overall is dealing with some pretty challenging demographics. And in particular, you know, the baby boomers hitting retirement age, birth rates declining, seen a large drop off in immigration. Is stagnant population growth overall going to be a challenge for real estate markets? It has been a challenge. I think it'll continue to be a challenge. The, the uh, you know, real estate has always been cyclical. Right? There are always ups and downs. Um, so I think, again, going back, I think some of the cities are seeing the benefits. So while the dem- overall uh, population growth might be relatively flat, uh, some markets like the, in the Sunbelt markets, Texas, Florida, Carolinas, are seeing strong um, population growth. Uh, so it's those areas that we're seeing the, the rental growth uh, surge continue uh, because they are seeing an increase in population. Uh, it's the bigger cities. The Northeast is suffering a little bit more. It also has to do with taxes. You know, where can people afford to live? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting to watch and, and will be going forward to see how that drives people. Uh, lower tax states, no tax states, no income tax states uh, are really seeing a, a big increase in, in population growth. Okay. Um, so during the pandemic, we saw huge relocations as people moved out of the cities and into the suburbs. And we saw the rise of work from home which left office buildings uh, you know, vacant or underutilized. Do you think the pandemic has had lasting impacts on the non-residential real estate market? We do, uh, really across the board. So I'll focus sector by sector um, a little bit in terms of, you mentioned uh, work from home. Um, we think there certainly will be an impact on the number of days people are in the office. Um, you know, I think there'll be much more flexibility offered to employees than there was before, but we still believe long-term people will be back in the office. Um, we've already seen it as, as COVID cases have declined and it, it happens as there are different surges. Um, but more recently, you know, there were a number of companies that were going to go back, uh, in 2021, pushed it out to early 2022 and now have stuck with their March or April dates. Uh, so we've really seen a, a big increase in the return to office. Um, and we expect that to continue. Uh, most people are still social. You know, they want to be with their coworkers. Um, they, the other thing that they want is they want more open space. You know, I think the trend towards um, lower uh, per square foot per employee is over. I think, I think companies have learned you can only limit how much space you give an employee so much, especially post-pandemic, where people are going back. They just want to go back in a more comfortable environment. Uh, so we've seen that uh, impact off of space as well. So we think the return will happen. Um, people want to, want to go back. They want to go back to newer space, nicer space. They're demanding more amenities. Uh, employers are recognizing that. Uh, so they are leasing space in newer buildings. They're expanding. Uh, obviously, there's some contraction as, as, as people figure it out. Um, and again, long term, we certainly think there will be an impact. Um, the other thing I would say, though, is 
the pandemic has postponed a lot of new development in office. Uh, so we're not seeing the big increase in supply that we had been seeing pre-pandemic. Uh, so there's been a slowdown on that. So I also think that'll help absorption. I think that'll eventually help reduce vacancy rates. Um, it will be a, a bit of a question of, you know, the newer office buildings will certainly do better than older office buildings. And then how do you repurpose the older office buildings if they're out there? Uh, two other sectors I mentioned real quickly. Uh, industrial has obviously seen a huge boom. Um, it was already having tremendous performance uh, pre-pandemic. And I think with um, online shopping uh, surging uh, throughout the pandemic, that certainly boosted the industrial space. Uh, we've seen a lot of development there, um, but really the absorption has kept pace. When you think about industrial space and you think about rent growth in industrial space, and we've seen rents increase by 20, 30, 40% in certain markets, um, the rent cost for industrial users is still a very small portion of their overall costs. When you look at labor, labor or um, you know, um, transportation costs, those types of things. So certainly uh, they can afford to pay more in rent. Uh, and then the closer in industrial is doing better than far out industrial um, because they make up for those rent costs in other ways. Uh, and then the last thing I'd say is on retail. We actually um, were happy that the retail held up as well as it did during the pandemic. Uh, grocery anchor shopping centers did very well. Um, malls suffered a little bit more, um, but we've seen the malls come back. Uh, certainly the higher quality malls coming back much quicker. Um, sales now in the malls that we own are above where they were uh, in 2019 and, tw and early 2020. So that's a positive sign too. You know, when you look at the U.S. consumer, they have a lot of money to spend. They're still not traveling as much as they were pre-pandemic. So they're going out and they're buying luxury goods and they're spending money. And, and I think they also have learned you can buy a lot online, um, but they still want to be out of the house and they still want to, you know, they want to spend their money. So maybe let's look at this a different way. When you look at your overall, and I know you invest in a lot of areas of real estate, where are you finding the best opportunities? Our focus the past couple of years has been on the development side, mostly in um, residential. So both multifamily and single family, uh, purpose-built single family uh, and industrial development. Those have really been the two key areas for us. We've had a, a very strong pipeline. Uh, when you look at our industrial exposure uh, across the board, um, we have not been big buyers of existing industrial. Uh, we still think you get a better return on building it rather than buying it um, because you give, similar to what I was saying about office, you know, people want the newest. They want the latest where you get 40-foot ceiling heights instead of 30-foot ceiling heights. Uh, you know, back 30 years ago, it was 20-foot, then it was 30-foot, now it's 40-foot. Uh, so you get, uh, you get to build that for them today. Um, that's been the best areas for us in terms of return. Okay, and, and finally, for investors, real estate has, has traditionally been regard as an inflation hedge. Um, given you know, the focus on inflation that everybody has today, what parts of real estate do you think are most attractive in that regard? Well, so you're right about real estate being an inflation hedge. Uh, you know, a lot of times real estate is lumped in uh, with fixed income. The, the big difference between bonds and real estate is that the real estate, uh, the tenants have uh, rent step-ups. So either... And use multifamily as an example. 
you only have one year leases typically in multifamily units. Uh, so every year you have an opportunity to increase the rents as wages go up, as you know everything that we've talked about. You also have the opportunity where rents decline quicker than they might in office. Uh, thankfully, most of it has been an increase. Uh, but in, when you look at office rents and office leases, if a tenant signs a 10 or 15 year lease, they are typically, typically going to have um, operating expense escalations. So every year they're repaying a portion of that. Uh, it'll, it'll move in lockstep with CPI uh, and they'll have a, an increase every three to five years on their base rent. So they might start out paying $70 and then a couple of years later, their rent goes to $72 or $75, things like that. So you, you get the rent growth over time uh, that you wouldn't see in, in other products. And that's true of industrial buildings and retail as well. Thank you for joining us, Mike. And thank you all for listening. Please tune into our next episode when I'll be joined by a special guest for a discussion on U.S. equity markets amid the first earning quarter earnings season. Until then, I invite you to read or listen to my Notes in the Week Ahead podcast, where every Monday I share commentary on the latest in the markets and economy to help you stay informed for the week ahead. For even more timely insights, you can also follow and subscribe to my content on LinkedIn. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions in current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.